Well, good morning. Good morning, and I bring greetings from the Redeeming Grace Church in Goodyear. Uh, thank you so much for praying for us this morning, for regularly praying for us. We pray for you all the time as well. And uh, whether you realize it or not, your church has served ours already in the first six months of my ministry. Um, I'm really here in many ways because Josh Vincent was the Lord's middleman. He called me back in February and told me about the opening and the pastor there at Redeeming Grace, and uh, the rest is history under God's providence. Uh, but Josh and I have had numerous phone calls together as I've got my sea legs under me in pastoral ministry, and Mal has helped me out with some, some projects, and Joshua Griever preached for us twice in November, and so thank you. Thank you for being such a generous church, for hosting all the conferences that you do here in the Valley, and we, we love your, your church and uh, count you as dear friends in the gospel. Well, a little over a year ago, uh, my then three-year-old son, Cooper, approached me with a question that I, I felt showed remarkable wisdom for a child of his age, and it just made me beam with pride as a parent. He looked up at me, at me and he said, hey, Dad, do you think we can watch Star Wars? And of course, being a dad who loves to sacrifice, to give good gifts to his children, I said, why, of course, son, we can watch Star Wars. Now, I, I'm no Star Wars nerd, but I've noticed that Star Wars, like many of the epic stories that we love, moves in a trajectory from darkness and evil and despair to light and good and hope. It's a common thread. For instance, in the, the very first Star Wars movie, oddly number, uh, titled uh, Episode 4, it's entitled A New Hope. Is there hope for the Rebel Alliance when all seems to be lost against the Galactic Empire? And of course, we know through the story, as it progresses, that that hope comes through a single figure, Luke Skywalker. The final episode that debuted last year or the year before is entitled The Rise of Skywalker. It's almost as if the galaxy's final hope is overcome. To overcome evil is, is embodied in a resurrection, a rising of Skywalker. I think the, the, these epic stories, like Star Wars, they reflect a, a core question of life that humanity has asked from the very beginning. Is there reason to hope? And if so, where can I possibly find real, solid hope in a world that is so messed up? This question pressed firmly on our collective consciences in the past year. As the reality of the pandemic set in, as, as sickness and death seem to be all around us, the lurk around every corner, as the normality of our day-to-day -day experience was stripped from us, we were left grasping for answers. And you know, in general, humanity has done a poor job of providing the answers to life's most important questions, including the question of hope. The world's religions seek to provide these answers, but at the end of the day, come up with things like nirvana, or the three celestial heavens, or reincarnation, none of which are a sure thing to those who seek them. Our culture tries to fill in the gaps with the religion of the self, pleasure or achievement or wealth, but the impending reality of death makes all of those things seem pretty shallow, doesn't it? Friends, praise God that the Bible 
provides the definitive answer about the source and the path of hope. Our passage today in Ezekiel has a decisive answer to these questions. There is solid, unmovable, eternal hope, and it's found in God alone through the resurrection of the dead. So if you haven't already, let's turn in our Bibles to Ezekiel 37. Again, as was mentioned, it's on page 724 of the Bible underneath your pew. The book of Ezekiel is the message of the prophet Ezekiel, who delivered God's word to God's people during their exile and their captivity in Babylon. Ezekiel's purpose was to restore God's glory before a people who had spurned him in view of the watching nations. The first 32 chapters of Ezekiel were written before the fall of Jerusalem in, uh, that fell in 586, right? So, and so God's fundamental message in those first 32 chapters was the doom of judgment for, for Judah, the southern kingdom of the divided nation, for her covenant-breaking idolatry, as well as judgment against the foreign nations who opposed her. But from chapter 33 on to the end of the book, after Jerusalem fell, the, the tone changes. God's message to his people now is one of hope and restoration. In fact, the passage immediately preceding our text this morning in Ezekiel 36 contains these massively important promises regarding how God would save his people. The end of Ezekiel 36 tells us that, that Yahweh will cleanse his people from their sin and he'll deal with their hard, impenetrable heart by giving them a new one. A heart that loves God and delights to obey him. But how in the world would this happen? How would God both restore and transform his people? Well, our passage this morning in Ezekiel 37, 1 to 14 answers that question. Israel's restoration would come through resurrection. The restoration would come through resurrection. Well, before we get into it, let's bow and let's pray one more time. Father, we need your help this morning. I need your help, certainly, to preach your word faithfully and accurately and boldly. And Father, we need your help to listen and hear and obey your word. And so, Spirit who gives life, take your word that gives life and enliven our hearts. Renew those whom you've already given life, and Father, give life to the dead, even this morning. Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, the structure of these 14 verses of Ezekiel isn't difficult. Verses 1 to 10 that we read contain Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones come into life. And then verses 11 to 14 contain the interpretation of the vision. Now, this passage seems intimidating at first glance. It almost seems like a cheap horror flick, doesn't it? But I think the central message, the main idea, is remarkably clear. In the valley of death and hopelessness, our God raises the dead and secures our hope. The main idea of the text that I hope is the main idea of this sermon is that in the valley of death and decay and hopelessness and despair, our God powerfully and mercifully raises the dead and secures our hope. I want to draw your attention to three emphases in the passage. These will make up the outline this morning, so if you're taking notes, here you go. Number one, 
the hopeless plight of the dead. We see that in verses 1 to 3 and verse 11. The hopeless plight of the dead. Number two, the life-giving power of the word and spirit in verses 4 to 10. Number three, the unshakable hope of the resurrected, verses 12 to 14. Brothers and sisters, I obviously don't know you well, but I imagine you're a lot like my congregation. Some of you came in this morning with, with full hearts and hands rejoicing in God's goodness to you. But I imagine there are a few among us who feel like your hands are empty, you're tired, you're weary, you're struggling for hope. So no matter what the state of your heart is this morning, I pray that God's word from Ezekiel 37 might cast your eyes to heaven, bolster your hope, and press upon your souls the glorious reality of the resurrection of the dead. So let's look together at number one, the hopeless plight of the dead here in these first few verses. In verse one, the hand of the Lord through his spirit transports Ezekiel into what seems like a virtual reality experience, prophet style. It wasn't uncommon for the Lord to communicate spiritual truth in this way. In fact, this is Ezekiel's third vision recorded in the book of Ezekiel. Now, during a prophetic vision, the the normal rules of reality are suspended, and, and the details and the imagery of the vision are often shocking and alarming. God, through his spirit, wants his people to see vividly the massively important truths that lie behind the symbolic world of the vision. In this case, the spirit of God took Ezekiel to a valley where he saw nothing but death. Bones littering the valley as far as the eye could see. Imagine coming down from from Camelback or the, the white tanks, and what you see across the valley is nothing but bones. Verse 2 says that the Lord took Ezekiel on a walking tour among the bones. Ezekiel draws our attention to three things about what he saw in the valley of the bones. First of all, just the sheer amount of them. Verse 1 says the valley was full of bones. Also in verse 2, there were very many of them. We're We're not talking about a few fragmented remains of a skeleton, like we might see in an excavation in the Middle East. We're talking about thousands upon thousands of bone remains lying right where their owners had died in the valley. If you look down at verse 10, you can piece together what it was that Ezekiel saw before him. Ezekiel was looking at the decomposed remains of a vast army killed in battle. And who is this vast army and why did they die? Well, the Lord gives Ezekiel the answer in verse 11. This is the whole house of Israel, both the northern and southern kingdoms in exile. This is their reality. God's people have no life. The second thing that Ezekiel highlights is the fact that the bones lied on the surface of the ground. Their death was so undignified that they weren't even given a proper burial All the flesh had either either rotted from their frame or been eaten by the vultures. And because Ezekiel knew Jewish ceremonial law about proper burial, he would have immediately recognized that the valley was unclean and under God's curse. Those who had died in the valley were cursed by God. The third thing Ezekiel notes is that the bones were dry. They had been there long enough to be bleached by the sun. They were so dry that the bones had separated and weren't even skeletal anymore. 
These people were decomposed beyond recognition. They were the deadest of the dead. The great American philosopher, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, once compared death to laundry when George Costanza complained about how long he had left his clothes in the dryer. And Jerry said, you can't overdye, and you can't overdry. In other words, there's not degrees to death. And while that may be true, there are degrees of hopelessness. That's what Ezekiel wants us to see. God's people have no life. And their plight is beyond hopeless. Look again at verse 11. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Friends, God's people in exile are singing their own funeral dirge. We have no life. We have no hope. We're cut off. And it's not just that they were removed from their home in Palestine, but they were also cut off from God's favor and his promises. Instead of being blessed in the land as he promised to Abraham, now they were cursed in a foreign land. Instead of relationship with God as his special people and treasured possession as was promised through Moses, God's people were abandoned, it seemed. Instead of the promised king ruling in righteousness from David's throne, David's throne now sat vacant, and they instead bowed the knee to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Friends, God's special people were cut off from life itself. The stench of death had long dissipated. They lie rotted and forgotten in the valley of death. They were as hopeless as dry bones. Friends, what Ezekiel sees appears to be the irreversible end of Israel's history with the Lord. They're done. And if Israel is done, then what hope does the rest of humanity have? If God has cast aside his chosen people, the vehicle of his promised salvation, then the nations whom Israel patterned her idolatry after certainly are equally doomed. Right from the start, we're reminded that Israel only brought one thing to the table in her restoration, her deadness. We're the exact same way. Ephesians 2 describes humanity without God as spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. Romans remind us that there's no, there's no one. There are none who naturally understand or seek after God so that it saves them. All of us have turned aside. Together we have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We're not merely injured or compromised or or weak. We're not struggling to stay afloat in the water so that the Lord needs to throw us a life preserver. We are dead at the bottom of the ocean. We are dead dry bones. As sons and daughters of Adam, all humanity has broken faith with God and lives under the curse of Adam's sin. In Adam, we were born into exile from God's presence with no access to the tree of life. We all have a calendar appointment with death. Without intervention, we too lie among the dry bones, spiritually dead and physically dying. Friend, let this truth sink in and humble you. The only thing that you and I can contribute to our salvation is our deadness. 
We desperately need a Savior. After taking Ezekiel on the death tour, the Lord asks Ezekiel a question that is both haunting and absurd. Son of man, can these bones live? What kind of a question is that? Bones can no sooner live than pigs can fly. But Ezekiel's response indicates that he knew who he was dealing with. Ezekiel knew that God alone holds the power of life and death. And so Ezekiel cautiously threw the ball back in the Lord's court. Oh, Lord God, you know, verse 3. Ezekiel cast himself entirely upon the sovereign power of God to do the miraculous and to raise the dead. And that is exactly what God did. Let's look at the second point this morning, the life-giving power of the word and spirit. In verses 4 to 10, God does what only God can do. He raises the bones to life. If God's question to Ezekiel about the bones, the dead bones living seemed absurd, how much more now his instruction to Ezekiel in verse 4? Look at it together. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Ezekiel, talk to these bones as if they can hear you. I mean, you talk about a message falling on deaf ears, right? What God asked Ezekiel to do is certifiably nuts. It's impossible. But friends, thankfully, our God delights to do the impossible because in doing so, he receives the glory that he deserves. What is the message that Ezekiel is to relate to the dead? Verse 5, thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. The message that Ezekiel was to deliver to the bones is that the Lord would give them life. Not just physical life but that all of them would have spiritual life because the, the verse says that they would know that he is the Lord. So verse 7 indicates that Ezekiel did precisely what God told him to do. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. I love that. Not after I prophesied, as I prophesied. Before Ezekiel was even done speaking, the bones stirred to action. The bones didn't hear God's word and think, ah, no, Lord, I'm good. I'm good. I like chilling right here on the valley floor. Thank you. No, the instant the bones hear God's word, they respond. Friends, this reminds us that God's word is not merely true. It is effectual. It does exactly what God intends it to do in the exact time that God intends to do it. The word gives life. And the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and the skin had covered them. All across the expanse of the valley, the bones rattled back into place. The foot bone connected to the heel bone. The heel bone connected to the ankle bone. Them bones, them bones, them dry bones. Now hear the word of the Lord. After the bones clicked in, muscle reappeared on the bone, vital organs materialized, and then the skin. 
what we're seeing here is the decomposition process in reverse. God is rolling back death to create life. But there's a big problem still. See that? There's, there's no breath in them. They're corpses once again, but they're not yet alive. And so the Lord commands Ezekiel to prophesy once again, not to the bones this time, but amazingly to the breath. Look at verse 9. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain so that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. You can't help but see the repeated use of the word breath or breathe, right? Prophesy to the breath. Say to the breath, oh, breath, breathe. And the breath came into them. Apparently, the breath is hugely important here. Actually, it's even more important than you might think because the Hebrew word that's translated breath is also the word for wind and the word for spirit, the ruach, the breath, the wind. The spirit of God is mentioned 11 times in 14 verses. Ezekiel wants us to see that there is is no way the bones will live unless the breath inspires them. Unless the the life-giving wind of God blows, unless the Spirit breathes. And so God, through Ezekiel, summons the breath to come from the four winds, simply meaning from every direction. This is the wind that gives life to all of God's creatures in all parts of the world. And just like before, Ezekiel speaks God's word, and it's effective. Immediately, the breath came into the corpses, and they stood on their feet. We've seen this two-step life-giving process before. It was mentioned in the pastoral prayer. At the very beginning, Genesis 2, verse 7, says that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God's breath creates life in creation and in recreation. The Spirit of God is the life-giver physically and spiritually. So brothers and sisters, don't miss this. God, through his prophet, insists that we see this vital connection between the Spirit of God and the Word of God. They're inextricably linked. The Spirit of God gives life by means of the Word of God. And the Word of God gives life as it's made effectual by the Spirit of God. Listen how Jesus echoes Ezekiel in John 6, 63. It's the Spirit who gives life. That sounds a lot like Ezekiel. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In other words, Jesus' words are the product of the Spirit who gives life. And when Jesus' words are activated in our hearts by the Spirit, they are life. The Spirit gives life. Jesus' words generate life. Reflecting on his brother, years later, James wrote in his, his letter that God brought us forth. He birthed us spiritually, clearly a work of the Spirit, through the word of truth. The word and Spirit together give life. Friends, why, why does Josh, why do your elders prioritize the preaching of God's word here at Trinity? 
Don't they know that people don't like sitting and listening to someone talk for 45 or 55 minutes? I don't know what it is. Don't they understand that your church could grow faster if they offered spiritual self-help talks? Or perhaps if, if you engineer your worship services specifically to appeal to those who don't know Jesus? I'm sure they know that. I'm sure that they know that. And friends, I'm not here to rag on church growth techniques and spiritual TED Talks and entertainment-based worship services. I'm really not. Those people and churches who utilize those things are often genuine Christians who genuinely want people to come to Jesus. But there's one big problem with an attractional ministry aimed at church growth. Those things cannot raise the dead. God's Spirit working through God's Word owns the patent on resurrection. It's the Word of God that creates the people of God, not the other way around. You cannot manipulate or manufacture spiritual life. Brothers and sisters, whether you realize it or not, your church is looked to among many in the valley, by many in the valley, as an influential church for the gospel's sake. You are a gifted church who prizes and, and preaches God's word faithfully. You preach the truth. Praise God for that. But friends, do not take it for granted. Do whatever you can to centralize God's word in, in your individual life, in the life of your family, in your corporate ministry. Don't become enamored by the trendy or the glitzy. Most of the time, the trendy has a shelf life. It's the life-giving power of the word and spirit that will endure. Your very life depends on it. Friends, I think the truth of Ezekiel 37 should affect the way that we pray. I think it should affect the way that we pray for the preaching of God's word, the way that we approach and pray for our parenting and our kids and for our evangelistic relationships. Why? Because preaching and parenting and evangelism is a lot like walking among dead bones. Parents, you know this is true. I don't know how many times that I've, that I've tried to speak the gospel to my children or to make a point about their view of God or their own sin that I really, really thought was going to land this time. Only for them to immediately respond with something like, hey, Dad, uh, can I have a snack? You know, for about the 14th time that day. I remember one time I was at bedtime, I was reading from the Jesus Storybook Bible to my oldest, Hadley and Cooper. And I think we were in the part of the Jesus Storybook Bible about Psalm 23, that how God is our good shepherd who leads and protects us, and just some, some really tender truths about the Lord. I thought, surely their little hearts are beginning to swell with love for God. And it was right then that Cooper two or three piped up and pointed to the story and said, hey, Dad, wouldn't it be super cool if Spider-Man just kind of came flipping through the story? Yeah, man, that'd be awesome. Listen, I love being a dad more than almost anything in the world, but gosh, it could be discouraging. Moms, you know this especially as the ones who spend the majority of time around the kids. The constant complaining, the, the bickering and ingratitude, ugliness toward their friends, callousness toward the things of God. Oh Lord, can these bones live? Parents, we have every reason to walk among the dry bones 
with prayerful hope and expectation. Not, not because of the structures that we set up in our kids' lives, not because we discipline them with perfect consistency. Oh, I wish I did, but I don't. Those things are good, but they do not give life. It's the word of God activated by the spirit of God that will bring life to their dead hearts. So mom, dad at Sunday school and children's church teachers, nursery workers, Trinity Bible Church members do not grow weary in doing good, in preaching the gospel and exposing your kids to God's word and praying then that the, that the spirit of God takes up, <laughs> blows wind into their little hearts and takes God's word and activates it into their hearts and so that they believe and repent of their sin. Our Lord Jesus echoed Ezekiel when he told Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Such an encouraging word. God is sovereign, not us. He blows where he wishes, not where we necessarily wish. So in our preaching, in our parenting, in our evangelism, we simply throw out the seed of God's word and pray that God makes it germinate in the heart. We have every reason to hope that it will do just that. Number three, the unshakable hope of the resurrected. Verses 12 to 14 shed even more light on this life-giving work of the Spirit. Remember why Israel is hopeless. Why are their bones so dry? Well, the relationship, this kind of three-way relationship between God, his people, and the promised land has been cut off. God's, God's promises now ring hollow in their ears. They're in exile. And so how does God give them hope? Well, he promises a return to the land, the ending of the exile. We see this very clearly at the end of verse 12. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And then at the end of verse 14, and I will place you in your own land. But notice, notice this return to the land also includes a restoration of the people's relationship with Yahweh in, in both 13 and 14. Text says, you will know that I am the Lord. The way this will happen, according to verse 14, is that the Lord will put his spirit within them so that they live righteously in the land. And when will this return and when will this restoration happen? Well, it will happen according to verse 12, when the Lord opens their graves and raises them from their graves. Okay, well, surely, surely this opening of the graves is all just part of the imagery and symbolism of the vision, right? Well, I'm not denying that there's another image there. But typically, in visions like these, the symbolic world represented a current or future reality that was, that was totally different than, than the symbols themselves. So, so we see an example of this later in Ezekiel 37, actually, where the, the fusing uh, together of two sticks represents the unifying of the divided kingdoms underneath a new David, the Messiah. He's going to lead them. But how does the Lord interpret the raising of the bones here to Ezekiel? He says, I will open your graves, and I will raise you from your graves, O Israel. What does the resurrection of the bones symbolize? Well, apparently it symbolizes resurrection, spiritual and physical life. Spiritual resurrection and recreation is easy to see. Notice 
Notice how Ezekiel 37, 12 to 14 really just echoes the language of Ezekiel 36, 22 to 32. Ezekiel 37, 14 says that, that God will put his spirit within his people. He's going to place them into the land that they might know him. So this is, this is Exodus language, right? It's used to describe what God will do in the future. God will bring his people out of captivity back into the land. Only this exodus will be far greater than the first exodus because this time the people will have the ability, all of them, to know God. Well, Ezekiel 36, 27 to 28, just look back at that, say almost the exact same thing. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave you your fathers. But Ezekiel 36 takes it a step further. This new exodus is going to look like a new creation. You see that? Look at Exodus 36, or Ezekiel, excuse me, 36, 35. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. So in both Ezekiel 36 and 37, God promises to deliver his people by recreating them, by the Spirit giving them life, raising the dead bones. So even here in this, this language about spiritual resurrection, clearly Ezekiel's focus is eschatological, simply meaning that he's, he's pointing us toward the age to come when death and sin will end. What will the end of exile look like? Well, it's going to be like a new exodus. It's going to be like a new creation. The people of God transformed by the Spirit, restored to the land, a, a physical resurrection in which God will open the graves and raise his people up. So the, the hope of God's people from this time forward, from the time of the, the prophets on, was that on the day of the Lord, they would experience a spiritual resurrection accompanied by a physical resurrection from the dead. Again, restoration through resurrection. What becomes clear in these verses is that, that, that this resurrection prophesied to the nation of Israel is fulfilled in two dramatically unexpected ways. Put your thinking cap on with me here as we go through this. The first surprise is that the primary fulfillment of this passage in Ezekiel is not by ethnic national Israel as a whole. We know the rest of Israel's history. Did they exit Babylon and return to the physical land of Israel? Yes, they did, right? Cyrus, king of Persia, set them free. But did their return include the widespread spiritual transformation and the spirits indwelling talked about in Ezekiel 36 and 37? No. Did it include the graves opening and the people rising of Ezekiel 37? No, it did not. God's people dwelt in their own land once again after the exile, but they were prisoners still of their sin and eventually were dominated by foreign nations once again. So if Ezekiel 37 is supposed to be fulfilled by the nation of ethnic Israel as a whole, we've got a big problem. Because the Lord said about these promises at the end of the chapter, I have spoken. I will do it. Either God would be impotent or a shyster. He either made promises that he could not or would not keep. But friends, we view these promises through another lens, don't we? We let Scripture interpret Scripture for us. We view them through the lens of the New Testament. We cannot apply these promises made to national Israel directly to us. As Gentiles, we have, we have no right to do that. 
But praise God, we don't, we don't believe that the promises of God in the Old Testament find their yes and amen in the church. We believe that these promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's obedient son, the true Israel, who lived righteously in the land where Israel failed. He's the rightful king. He's the new David, the Messiah, who flawlessly represented his people. His teaching and his miracles shouted out that this age to come had arrived. The blind were given their sight. The lame were made to walk. The dead were raised. In order to cleanse his people from their sins, as Ezekiel 36 predicted, Jesus took the full penalty of the curse of sin upon himself. Remember verse 11? Remember Israel's funeral dirge? That they were cut off? Well, in Isaiah 53, the same is said about God's suffering servant, the Messiah, that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of his people. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ descended into the valley of the dead on behalf of his people so that he might raise them up. Do you remember what Matthew's gospel says took place when Jesus died? The tombs in Jerusalem cracked open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. It's Ezekiel 37 in motion. Three days later, Jesus emerged from the valley of the dead, victorious. God opened the Messiah's grave and he raised him up through the power of the Spirit. Ezekiel 37 is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying that you cannot receive the promise of resurrection life on your own. You have to go through Jesus. You have to be connected to Jesus by faith. And so praise God, through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension to the right hand of the Father, our Lord led us out of exile. He broke the chains of our sin. He's the, he's the first edition of the new creation. He's paved the way to the promised land. Even now, he's preparing a home for us so that all of us, united to Jesus by faith, believing Jews, believing Gentiles, might dwell with God, not merely within the land of Israel, but in a remade universe a new heavens, and a new earth. The glorious surprise is that the promises made to Israel are fulfilled in Jesus, the true Israel, and then dispensed to all who are connected to him by faith. So we're spiritual descendants of Abraham. We receive God's promises through Christ. Well, the second surprise is that the resurrection is staged out in two parts. Ezekiel and the prophets saw physical and spiritual resurrection as, as bound together and as happening at the, at the exact same time at the end of the age. But, but God's plan was more glorious than that, wasn't it? His plan was to gather a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation through Jesus and so, so that now, even in the midst of this age of sin and death and suffering, God's spiritually resurrected people might live to the praise of his glory. Friends, what I'm saying is that these promises made to Israel through Ezekiel are not just metaphor. They're, they're fulfilled literally through literal spiritual resurrection by the word and spirit and by literal physical resurrection on the last day. Do you understand what that means? Practically, right now, that means that this glorious age to come has broken into the nasty now, this age of sin and suffering. 
We have received the Spirit. We have received the sign of the age to come. And the Holy Spirit guarantees our hope like a down payment on the full payment, right? Listen to how Paul hammers this point home in Romans 8. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. That is Ezekiel 37, 1 to 14 in a nutshell. Spiritual resurrection now, physical resurrection then. Brothers and sisters, we have an unshakable hope. As Christians, we live in the now through the lens of the future. You're going to be stunted if all you do, stunted in your Christian growth is what I mean. You're going to be stunted in your Christian growth if all you do is look back at the cross and at the resurrection. I used to think that's what being gospel-centered meant in its entirety. But if you understand the gospel correctly, friends, it will catapult your gaze into the future to see the hope that awaits you, that eternity has erupted in your heart and that your entire existence now is shaped by what awaits you. Friends, we look for a better country, an unshakable kingdom, an abiding city. On the last day, God will open our graves and the dead in Christ will actually rise first. We'll rise with the power of the word and spirit. We will live in the land of eternal joy with our Lord forever. For Christians, death is merely the gateway to glory. The 17th century poet George Herbert wrote, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel just makes him a gardener. Death just plants seeds that will bloom on the last day. So we look death straight in the face and say, as Herbert did so eloquently, spare not, do thy worst. Thou shalt only make me better than before. Christian hope isn't wishful thinking. It's confident expectation. It's, it's resolute conviction that because Jesus rose and we believe in him, we will rise one day too, just like Ezekiel said. It's, it's hope that puts steel in our bones, right? It puts steel in our guts. It makes us a, a joyfully resilient people. So that when those precious to us pass away, when you lose a baby, when job frustrations weigh you down, when your desires seem to be unfulfilled, when COVID-19 seems to just unrelentingly alter your life, you can rejoice and grieve with hope because your hope isn't in any of those things but in Christ in your glorious future with him. Hundreds of years after Ezekiel, another prophet far greater than he grieved with sisters of a dead man named Lazarus. And before he called Lazarus out of his tomb, he cried, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dead, Though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die.